Thank you all for joining us on this special edition of Mwango Spaces. Another Thursday, we always have these discussions every Thursday just to try to understand the markets, to talk to the leaders and people who are moving and making money in the industry to be able to help us guide in terms of how we can be able to invest in the market and all. So thank you so much for joining us today. Today we have a special edition where I just focus on one company and one product mostly and what they do. My name is Eric Mokaya. I'm the founder of Mwango Capital. I have with me Nahashon, who works at SIB and also Kahinda. Thank you for giving us your time this Thursday evening to be able to discuss Mansa X and SIB. I'll just dive right in and start with Nahashon. Maybe Nahashon, you can introduce yourself and say what you do at SIB and what SIB is. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. My name is Nahashon Kabiru Mungai. I'm the executive director for Global Markets at Standard Investment Bank. Karim Busana Kahinda. You know, maybe you can introduce yourself here. Thank you, Eric, for having us. My name is Joseph Kahinda. In a portfolio analyst at Mansa X. I'll come to you a bit later. So let's start with Nashon. Maybe you can tell us a bit about SIB. What is as a bank and why the name Standard Investment Bank? And do you have any relationship with Standard Bank across Africa? Yeah, that's a good question, Eric. So, no, first of all, we don't have any relationship with the Bank of South Africa. We just have a similarity in name. So, we are called Standard Investment Bank, but we are one of Kenya's largest indigenous investment banks. We were founded in 1995, so almost 30 years old now. And the regulatory capital for an investment bank in Kenya is 250 million shillings. We, mal- we have about 850 million shillings as SIB company capital. Our client base includes governments, fund managers, corporations, financial institutions, retail and high net worth individuals, and the government as well. We manage about 25 billion worth of assets, mostly for Kenyan investors and members of the Nairobi Stock Exchange, the Central Depository and Settlements Corporations, the Kenya Association of Stockbrokers and Investment Banks as well. Very interesting. Maybe you can tell a bit about maybe the history of the bank. Where did you get founded? How has been this journey like? And how did you get to the 25 billion Kenya shillings in terms of assets and management? Who gives you this capital? We were founded in 1995 as Standard Stocks. So that's the original name of the company. And we were just a regular stockbroker. Okay. so. Just to explain, so a stockbroker, the only business you can do as a stockbroker is buying and selling financial instruments on behalf of your clients. But as an investment bank, you can do a lot more. So other than just buying and selling instruments for your clients, you can also make investments on their behalf, what you call discretionary fund management. You can also do advisory work, uh, like helping your clients to do balance sheet management, mergers and acquisitions, and private equity and venture capital. That's the difference between a stockbroker and an investment bank. So going back to where we started as a stockbroker in 1995, and within eight years, by 2003, that's when we got licensed as Standard Investment Bank. So we changed our name to Standard Investment Bank. We normally refer to ourselves as SIP. Okay. The reason for this is actually just to deal with the initial concern. Are you related to Standard Bank of South Africa? So we now call ourselves SIB and we find that it's less confusing for our clients. Over that period, we have been able to be part of a lot of transactions in the local capital markets landscape. And just let me just first say who founded us. Our founder is called Mr. James Wangunyo. He founded us in 1995. So just going back a bit. And he was also the chairman of the NSC for over 10 years and up to now continues to guide the firm. So after we got an investment banking license in 2003, over time, we have gotten several awards, Best Investment Bank for more than five times during that period. We've handled several large transactions. In fact, one of the biggest capital markets transactions that has ever been done, which is 
the Kenjen rights issue of 28 billion shillings was actually handled by ourselves. Of course, the one that's really exciting and mostly known by the public is the fact that we were the first ones to be licensed by the CMA to create their product called Mansax. That was the first one in Kenya to, in a regulated way, allow investors to, to have access to global financial instruments. So that's really the journey. And that was at the tail end of 2018. Since then, we've continued to do the same things, both managing funds on behalf of our clients, as well advisory work through our corporate finance. And then on the sales side, continue to be one of the biggest brokers on the equities and fixed income space. Locally. There's a lot to unpack there in terms of, I think, investment banking versus stock brokerage. There's a lot of people who'd love to learn, maybe want to be part of these industries in the future. Maybe you can give a bit of your personal journey now, a personal touch to it. How did you get to SIB and how do you get to become an executive director? Okay, so I started my journey in banking, actually, commercial banking now. So I have worked as a trader, what you call a trader, an interbank trader. So an interbank trader, within a bank, you have a department called treasury. This is where a lot of people probably don't know this, but within a bank, they are the people who buy and sell mostly currencies and trade in what you call an interbank space. And they do this to make a profit for the bank. And it's a significant profit. In fact, for some banks, it's more than 50% of the income of most banks. So that's why I started my journey. And I started my journey in INM Bank, where I used to be a dealer. Then I moved on to Equity Bank, did the same thing. Traded at KCB Bank as well, where I traded derivatives. Derivatives are a bit more complex, but it's very similar to other instruments, except now, I don't know if I should go into the details, but then traded derivatives for KCB. And then after that, I was a Bank of Africa head of treasury, both in Kenya and in Uganda. But during this period, of course, I was always very puzzled by the fact that investment banks were not doing a lot more in Kenya. Okay, because if from where I sat in commercial banking, a lot of the transactions we do with what you call offshore counterparties was actually with investment banks. So it, it was very strange for me because I did not understand why investment banks in Kenya did not do what the JP Morgans or the city banks, or the Goldman Sachs in New York and London are able to do. Yet, the license that they have actually allows them to do the same things, okay? So this was something that was always at the back of my mind. And I set out and said, one day I'll change this. And one day I will do something different and not keep asking questions and actually do something about it. So in 2017, I started my journey of leaving the bank. I eventually left and joined SIB as a consultant at the time. And then we were able to create this fantastic product called MansaX that just proved the concept of the fact that Kenyans wanted to and needed to be exposed to different instruments for trading and that investment banks were really the best channel for doing this. So that's really the journey. And because of this, I was then able to be appointed as executive director at SIB to run with this global markets division, mostly because Nobody at the time really understood what I was trying to do. And they told me, listen, since you know what you're trying to do, you run with it. And instead of coming and telling us as a consultant, you, let's do this and so on. Please run with this and help us to achieve what it is that you seem to be very certain about. Good stuff. Maybe you could give a bit of perspective on exactly what it takes to maybe succeed in the world of investment banking, a stockbroker. If someone wants to join investment banking, what kind of things should they maybe be reading or looking out for in school and in life to be able to become an investment banker like you have? Of course, the first thing is that you have to be interested in it, okay? Just like any other thing, you're more likely to succeed in it if it's interesting enough for you. By interesting enough, it means that you are more interested in learning about that industry more than what they simply teach you at school, okay? You need to be the kind of person who's constantly trying to find out what's happening in markets. You need to be 
the sort of person who's always trying to think of solutions to the problems in the investment world or in wealth management solutions over and above what they teach in school. On top of that, you need to be the kind of person who is very creative, very innovative, very ready to handle pressure because there's a lot of that. It's not always just good days and fun days. There are days that almost everything goes wrong. The math is low way. So you need to be the kind of person who can deal with that and still come out on, on top and be energetic enough to make that happen. We see a lot of people coming into investment banking, especially the young guys. And from day one, they're expecting this glamorous job where from day one, you're handling millions of dollars worth of transactions. But really, it's really a journey. And a lot of things happen in your head. And it's important for you to bring that into investment banking rather than expect it to create it in you. And I think a big part of the reason stockbrokers and investment banks at some point struggled is because they absorbed a lot of people who expected to gain from the industry rather than give to the industry. And I think the exceptional investment bankers would typically be the kind of people who come into the industry and do things different. So yeah, you need to be a different kind of thinker. Thanks so much, Darshant. And now we'll just switch a bit to Mantha X and maybe we can start with Kahinda to give us a bit of a flavor on when exactly was the idea of Mantha X founded and what is Mantha X. Kahinda, you should maybe say a little bit about your day-to-day -day tasks as a portfolio manager. Thank you. So I'll start with my day-to-day -day tasks, which will give some color on what Mantha X is and how we do it, and then I'll get into that. What I do is analyze this investment book, try and figure out what would best serve our clients, discuss this, what needs to be discussed, and then execute. So it's basically just idea origination and execution. We look at different classes. We look at stock indices. We look at bonds. We look at equities, both cash and derivatives. We look at commodities, metals, currencies, both local and global. Then that begs the question, what is Mansa X? Mansa X is a fund, multi-asset strategy fund that invests in all the asset classes that I've listed. And basically what we aim to do is apply a long and short trading model that is very specifically designed to optimize returns for our clients, best possible returns, but then within a very controlled risk environment. That's the crux of what Mansec does. We look for yields, manage risk, and how we do this is we also FSCY at any one point we're very well diversified across asset classes, across instruments within the asset classes, and our portfolio is rebalanced very frequently or as frequently as opportunities present themselves. So I'll double click on that maybe national now. Uh, give us a bit of uh, maybe an overview of the fund structure now it looks like from the inside. Okay, so... Even just, even just how it's structured is very interesting because when we initially started the fund, it was purely an online Forex money manager. And we always think of this as a misnomer. So originally, it was almost as if the only asset class that Amanza X could trade was just Forex, especially just currencies. Okay. But for obvious reasons, it goes against our ethos, which was creating a fund that can invest in various asset classes. So we then slowly evolved Mansa X to now be a multi-asset strategy fund that now trades in various asset classes. So within the fund, you have myself as a portfolio manager. I'm the one who oversees the entire fund and, and really just tries to create a harmonious way of 
our yeah. portfolio analysts interact with each other and the portfolios that they run under them. So we have analysts who are better placed to trade currencies. We have some who are better commodities traders. We have some who are better in equities. We have some who are just better in just trading derivatives, for example. And all this plays in to give you the return that Mansa X gives. On top of that, we have an investment com committee that oversees the entire fund, including myself. And this investment committee is comprised of not necessarily people who are in the global markets division, but also from other departments who are then able to bring in a different view on some of the investments that we make within the fund. So we have people from compliance, we have people from corporate finance, we have people from the board, we have some people from the sales side of the business as well, who help to then bring in insights and help to then help us in the overall risk management of the fund. On top of this, then you have a board that oversees this investment committee, again, really on at least with a less frequent way of doing this, again, checks the decisions and ratifies certain decisions that are made by this investment committee. So that's MonsaX for you. A big part of... Uh, what we've tried to do in Mansax is also just to automate a lot of things. We have a middle office. Sorry, I forgot to mention the operation side. So yes, you have the middle office and back office. So these are the departments that verify profits, uh, verify valuations of instruments within the fund, verify that limits are well adhered to. And again, they have tools that allow this to be automated. A lot of our risk management is actually automated. There's a reason for this. From my experience in banks, I saw, and it always was a concern for me that sometimes risk is not managed on a real-time basis, but it's reported at the end of the day. And by that time, it can be too late. Okay. If a trader breached their limit at 8 a.m. in the morning, all right, and that has caused fundamentally risky exposure for the fund, you reporting it at 4 p.m. is not really risk management to me. This should have been picked up at the exact point that he clicked on the buy or sell. And that's what we have done now with Mansa X internally. That's the other thing that we've done that I think is very unique to how we manage our risks. And maybe in terms of being multi-asset and multi-asset strategy, you can speak a bit about the allocations across the various pockets. Is that something that is proprietary or can you discuss that? I see that you have a bit of information on the top 10 assets or yeah. the top 10 holding. How do you go about portfolio allocations in these and various asset classes? Yes. So firstly, yes, it is proprietary for obvious reasons. But yes, we will give you the top 10 holdings. We give that. But how do we make these decisions? Portfolio allocation techniques. We try to have as much of a genuinely diversified portfolio as possible. Okay. This does not necessarily mean purely having different instruments in your portfolio at any one time. We also look at correlation risks at any one time, making sure that we don't have one-way risks, for example. We're not trying to be a long oil and long oil companies at the same time, for example, that you have a one-way risk. So we analyze all these things. We analyze volatility changes in the various assets that we trade. If you've ever looked at our top 10 holdings, you'll probably notice that they change quite significantly. That's because certain volatilities will change within a period of time and it will either require us to increase the holdings we have of a particular asset class or reduce that or eliminate the asset altogether and this changes over time it's a very dynamic way of handling a portfolio but there's one key advantage that we have most of the asset classes that we are talking about especially the ones that are trading in international markets they allow you a certain level of leverage okay whether it's through access to margin-traded assets or clean trading lines from international investment banks. Because of this, we therefore tend to be very cash-rich, okay? And this is one of the ways that we are able to then 
get a higher than average return, but at the same time be liquid enough to handle withdrawals and deposits into the fund. That's very unique to Mansa X. Moving forward, because we are getting more and more institutional investors and there's a push to have pension funds actually invest in alternative investment funds such as ours. One of the things that will change moving forward is actually for the top 10 holdings will actually now be giving you a percentage figure just to help give a better idea of what kind of exposure we have in those asset classes. The only thing we will not promise is that they will be static because this changes. As Kahinda said, there's, especially when markets are volatile, you have a lot of portfolio rebalancing and recalibrations. And this, again, is very proprietary to the fund. And on that note, discuss a bit about the portfolio returns since inception. I think that's interesting to discuss. And I actually commend you on the fact that you also want to really view top 10 holdings in terms of percentages. It's good to have that industry practice of having at least a top 10 holding for percentages in terms of allocation next to them. They would obviously change, but that's good to have. So maybe discuss in the track record in terms of returns and a bit of perspective in terms of risk and how often you do portfolio rebalancing. I'll start with the easier one. How often we do portfolio rebalancing? Again, as frequently as need be. Frequency, of course, is determined by markets. So sometimes you have very gentle markets where volatility is not really high. You can have the same portfolio for even four or five months and just keep revaluing that portfolio every day. Then sometimes you can have erratic market periods. Like when you look at how markets were last year when Russia invaded Ukraine. And so during such a period, you're talking about rebalancing your portfolio every four or five days. Not the entire portfolio, but at least the weighting of some of the assets in that portfolio. It becomes a lot more erratic. Then in terms of returns, first of all, we are in our fifth year since inception because we were granted our license at the tail end of 2018. So we've been running this fund for about five years now. and during that period, we've been able to have an average return of about 16 to 17% after our fees, which is 5% annualized. And we feel, again, this proves the concept that this sort of fund over time gives a better return. In fact, I'm just looking for a number here to show you. So if you invested 1 million shillings in the past of January 2019, your 1 million shillings will now be worth 1.959 million shillings as at the end of last year. 31st of December, 2022. Literally, you'd have doubled your money within that period. Speak a bit about the size of investments someone can do, the top up, the redemption fees, performance fees, and all that. Oh, thank you for asking that. The minimum investment is 250,000 shillings. That's a minimum investment. The minimum top up amount is 100,000 shillings. We have a lock in period of six months and we charge 5% fee per year. That's a management fee. But it's prorated over the year. So we don't charge you 5% upfront, for example. No, it's 5% divided by 365. For example, if you withdrew your funds after six months, then you have your return after six months less 2.5% for that period. And then we are very quick with our withdrawals. One of the things we pride ourselves about is that we have a very liquid fund, allowing us to process funds, our withdrawals within two to three working days. In fact, this is mostly dependent on the bank that you use, because that's actually where a lot of the delays sometimes come from. So this week, we are managing 12.7 billion shillings. That's impressive in terms of the holdings that you have. But I think you could speak a bit about how you manage, especially redemptions, because I know like globally, that's been an issue on some of the funds. They have an issue in terms of maybe too many people wanting to exit at the same time. But you seem to have a very liquid portfolio that is turning over very fast. So you're not stuck with the liquid investment. Some of the funds that I've seen, especially those with exposure to real estate. So what are some of the deliberate moves you've made to ensure that there's always liquidity if someone wants to withdraw? 
I really like that you've asked that, Eric, because one of the things that, again, always fascinated me with how Kenyans look at investments, the first thing they'll ask you is, how much return will I get? Okay. Kenyans will rarely bother with anything else, but I feel we should have more questions surrounding, can I access my funds when I need them? Okay. Is my fund well diversified enough that if your portfolio, you are not right about some assets in how much drawdown can I get? People don't ask those questions. People are most focused on their returns. So it's good you're asking that. But from when we started Mansax, we were very deliberate to invest purely in liquid instruments and to make a very deliberate effort to, even within those liquid instruments, to also trade them in such a way that we still had a lot of cash available. Because we were not trying to double the returns in the markets. All we were trying to do was have higher than average returns without a disproportionate risk. So. We have invested in liquid instruments that allow investors to access their funds when they need to, and at the same time, not depriving them of the advantage of exposure to those assets. As I mentioned earlier, one of the tools we use is leverage. Another tool we use is a lot of uh, association and trading lines that we have created with several investment banks and brokers around the world. And I feel for us, that's very unique. I don't think there are a lot of Kenyan investment funds. I don't want to speak for their strategy, but I doubt that there are very many investment funds in Kenya that trade the way that we do. Maybe the next question is about risk management. You say that. How much of your portfolio, if I may ask, I don't know if you're free to answer, but how much of your portfolio is in cash at any given point in time? Sometimes we can have as much as 60% of our portfolio in cash, but it typically never goes below 35% of portfolio in cash. And then have you seen stress points, especially in periods of maybe global market turmoil, like last year when Ukraine invaded, do you get like this maybe huge wave of people wanting to withdraw funds? Are they stable? And what's the constitution like of the people investing with you? How are they yeah. looking like? You meet them often. Exactly. You nailed it there. That's actually the thing. So one of the things that has helped us is for average investor is a retail investor. A lot of people probably think that most of our clients are these big investors who invest millions of shillings with us. Our average investor is a 250,000 investor. And by the way, we are actually looking to reduce this figure, okay? Mostly because the 250,000 was an administrative number at the time. And I'll explain why shortly. But to answer your question, because we have over 7,000 clients, most of whom are retail investors, even if we get a bit of shocks in terms of withdrawals, especially around the time we give our returns, around the time Kenyans will typically need to pay their school fees and so on or go on holiday. Those are things that we expect. We are able to predict those. But we have the advantage of having so many clients that the shock is not felt. We don't have the risk of if you're in a bank, you have to constantly do your liquidity stress testing, especially for your big clients. We are lucky not to have that. What was a problem for us starting because we were always trying to attract institutional investors and ended up getting more retail investors what initially was a concern for us turned out to be a blessing in that it has helped us to have stability in how the liquidity of the fund is able to be managed. And I'm a bit curious, how much is the average investment for someone? Then you play around with the numbers and you see what's your institution, retail mix like? like just a curious question. You don't have to answer it, obviously. But I can actually. Less than 10% institutional, 90% retail. Then of that retail, the average investment is 1 million shillings. That's the average investment. And then let's speak about the fees. Someone here is complaining that the fee is too high. Well, how do you justify getting someone's 5% to manage their fees every year? I answer this question by saying that it's a more administratively involving. A lot of the systems that we've had to set up, hiring people like Kahinda over here and attracting that kind of talent, investing in systems that can manage the number of instruments that we trade 
including how to manage that risk, is very administratively involved in and continues to be. And, and it's very hard to. And for us, we always feel if we did not deliver a return that was above average and we were demanding 5% from our investors, we would be the first ones to slash that fee. But we feel it's more than justified given the amount of work that goes into to push the return by that limit. You know how it is, Eric, when you're trying to get alpha, just an extra 1% above market takes in 10 times more effort because there's a reason why everyone else is at a certain level. So just trying to push that envelope by 1%, 2% requires a lot more effort than outsiders might actually think. And then in terms of the team, what's the experience like of the team? And you say you have 16 years of experience yourself, but yeah. then who do you work with? Who's under you and who plays your role? Like Kahinda, what does he do for you? So Kahinda is a portfolio analyst and he is mostly a commodities analyst and he's done an excellent job with that, especially last year we needed that. And so he'll do that. He'll also do a lot of financial modeling because a lot of our assets are actually traded as derivatives. One of the reasons that, that we do not require as much cash to run the fund. Which derivatives is that you use to manage? So we use, we use a lot of options to trade our assets. Okay. We get into a lot of futures. We get into a lot of margin traded swaps like and long term. So we do forwards, we do swaps, we do interest rate swaps to manage interest as well. This at any one time required to be modeled. And as for example, Kahinda does financial modeling. Then we have other traders who are just very good, for example, in just punting currencies, being actively trading, trading currencies. We have other traders who are very good at researching companies. We have some traders, for example, we have one trader who runs up to 50 companies, uh, mostly in the U.S. market and he's very good at creating return out of that. Each of them has an advantage and something that they're good at. We also have a very strong Eurobond desk. In fact, we were the first investment bank to locally broker uh, Eurobonds and create a presence on Euroclear and Euronext. And again, this is something that we've been able to make a good return from by actively trading some of these papers. So your exposure is global, your presence is local, your knowledge, it seems like it spans those two. And Eric, we still trade local assets. Let's be very okay. clear about that. We What's actually trade local assets. We trade local fixed income. We trade local stocks. In fact, for a very long time, Safaricom was actually one of our top holdings. Yeah, I think if you look at our last three fact sheets or so. So we do trade local assets. We just think of ourselves as a fund that can trade anywhere. And there's a reason for this, Eric. You see, when we started X, the idea was not that we were trying to run away from investing in Kenya. No, that was not it. The idea was we had investors who kept coming to us and telling us, we've had a bear run in the NSE for the last five years. Come on, give us something different to trade in. We understand, yes, we are supposed to wait out the stock market, but we are so tired of watching CNN and seeing that the New York Stock Exchange has been on a rally for the last two years and we are here suffering. Why can't you give us exposure to those assets? It's those kind of questions that made us go to those assets, not because we were trying to run away. It was really just to bring them in as well. I always give this example that, when a typical Kenyan wakes up in the morning, he'll hail an Uber on his phone. He uses that Uber to get to work. When he gets to work, at lunchtime, he'll order food, maybe on Jumia or so on, again, online. He goes home, he's tired, he'll watch a show on Netflix. The entire time, his entire experience has been with foreign companies. He's paying these foreign companies. Then the same client, the same Kenyan, when he comes for an investment solution, you tell him, no, the only thing you can buy is a property in Kamulu. We'll take you there on Saturday. And on top of that, maybe only one or two stocks on the Nairobi Stock Exchange. Of course, they feel cheated because they know they can get more. Kenyans are very well exposed. And Mansa X has been proof of that. The growth and excitement, enthusiasm we have seen in the growth of Mansa X proves that Kenyans were ready for something that actually exposes them to global markets that they already knew about. 
whether local Kenyans or the ones in the diaspora. I'll give you a break and I'll come back to you. Then you can speak about the team. Hinda, maybe you can tell us a bit how your day looks like in terms of managing a portfolio with Narshon and Mansa X and SIB. Okay, thank you for that question. Typically, what happens is the day starts very early. We wake up, see what happened in the American market, what's happening in Asian markets, whether they any impact in the positions that they're running. We then get into the office. A few hours later, that's at around 8 a.m. And then basically just look at the close of market the previous day. How is our book looking? So we have reports that we work on very early in the morning, just looking at software months. And then once that is done, we then scan the markets, browse the markets, look at what's happening, what happened, how does it look like it will play out for the day, for the week, and then try and form ideas, intraday and also long-term ideas based on that. You look at the best of all the ideas because on any one day, you have plenty of ideas, trade ideas. So what we then do is try and drill down to which one would offer the best return for the money and we'll execute. And then just basically constant monitoring and management of the position and of the risk that it presents to the funds. And as that is going on in the background, there's also a lot of reading in terms of what's happening, keeping up with news, always on the lookout for breaking news and developments, just to see how whatever is happening anywhere in the world affects either one, anything that they're holding or two, any opportunities that may present. So it's basically just always being present, always being present in the moment, in the news, in the portfolio that's running and in any opportunities that they present. Always trying to find a way to generate return while being agile enough to remain reactive to anything that's happening. Maybe a question for you again, Kahinda. What's your best trade that you embed and how did you feel about it? You don't have to describe the details because that can also be a bit insider info, but what's the best trade you've made and how did you feel about it? I think the best trade I made was run for a few months between December 2021 and March 2022. Sean has mentioned I do a lot of commodities, so it was a commodity trade. What happened is I had noticed there was a trend forming on some soft commodities. And after a lot of research, background work, seasonality analysis and whatnot, I took some positions and then what happened between Russia and Ukraine happened. And that just blew the returns exponentially in our favor. The debt that remains one of the most interesting trends I've ever taken. I remember last year we went to meet a client and I told him I was holding a position in this and that got me to it like a few weeks before Russia invaded Ukraine. And when Russia invaded Ukraine, the commodity went up almost three times its price. I couldn't believe it. That is the nature of the game, the nature of what we do. It's all about following the money, following the trends and... Sometimes chips fall in place that make what you're doing present the more better. You can tell us a bit about how you handle losses and maybe national international can come back to that. How do you manage your losses? How do you manage your emotions? Because sometimes a good trade, you can hold on to it for too long. I did that with, I think, a company called Cloudflare. It's tripled and I didn't sell and it went down almost just as much as I bought. So I think I don't know how you handle that. But yes, it's good that you mentioned that. And that's a very important thing to say. Because traders are not magicians. We don't constantly make profits. Please repeat that for people because I think there's a conditional yeah. kind of thing that you have, especially in the Kenyan markets. And we have a lot of sellers. Now people are sending products and they're always telling you how it's going to go up and up always. Yeah. Uh, so I think yes. it's a very important thing to repeat slowly for everyone to hear. We are definitely on the same page, I can see. Yes. Yeah, so, yes, traders are not magicians. 
they will have the best interest in a trade. They will do as much research as you want. You can spend a whole week analyzing a company and waiting for the perfect time to time it, whether it's after earnings or waiting for certain announcements, making sure you're not getting injured in a volatile period, making sure your lines align. So lines in our business means technical analysis, where you actually do statistical analysis of past price movements to predict where the markets are going to go. You make all those analyses and when you get into the market on that particular day, something changes and you make a loss. It's heartbreaking. In fact, I think traders go through the most constant and perpetual heartbreaks anyone can go through. And it's also because of the human nature. So when you win, a win does not feel as exciting as the pain that you feel from a loss. It's disproportionate. So when you win, if you were to give it a number, it would be X. And if you make a loss, it's minus 3x. The psychology of a trader is very important. And that is why when a lot of traders who come seeking to work for Mansayx and they say, no, listen, I have done enough analysis. I've done enough research. I'm certain I can be a good trader. I have been on various platforms and I've made a return on my 1,000 investment and my $1,000 investment is not $5,000. I'm certain I can be a good trader. We still need them to come and work for some time. Why? Because the psychology of trading is not something you can train someone to be ready for. So like that example Eric just gave where he ran a trade and it was three times the value. And then in one day, probably the entire gain was erased. That is not something you can be taught in school. And that's something you have to go through for years and years to allow it never to phase you and be able to quickly bounce back into the market and phased by such a move. A lot of newbie traders cannot deal with that. I've seen it in markets and it's one of the reasons. So if anyone reaches out here and tells me that they can trade and they're happy to join Mansayx and start trading by tomorrow. And if you see any hesitation from me, that's where it comes from. It doesn't come from the fact that we think we are better than you. It comes from the fact that we know it takes a very long time to be psychologically resilient, to be a good trader. That's something I agree with you on it. You study the world's best investors and what they say mostly is control of emotion is actually a better thing to have than the actual skill of trading itself. So I think a lot of money managing comes down to sometimes breaking a trade, even if you like it so much and you become attached to it, you have to break it off and then start all over again. And honestly, here it's people's money involved. You don't want to lose it. You want to keep it at the end of the day. Other than what National is describing, prospect theory, which is what I was describing. So how do I handle lotives? Every day when we report to work, every day when, you know, we are in a trade and either it's working for us, it's working against us. There's psychological stuff that's happening that if the trade is positive, you do not want it to turn the other way. And if it's negative, you do not want to essentially either one, cut the loss and not take a greater loss or two, you do not want the loss to become bigger. So one, what has helped over time is you become a bit more self-aware of when these things are happening. And that way you're able to catch yourself before you get into that zone of valuing gains and losses disproportionately. And then two, the practice that we built is before we get into any trade, one, we know exactly where our entry point is, where our exit point is on both sides. And there's just no deviating from that. So... Before you get into it, you have your stop loss level, you have your take profit level. And of course, on a trade by trade basis or on a day by day basis, these are meant to be in adherence to the set limits. Each trade has limits, limits within which they cannot lose or go beyond. So we have trading limits and loss limits that apply to by position and also day by day. 
So if I, let's say, for example, illustratively, I was risking X amount of dollars on one trip and I'm not supposed to lose more than 3X in a day. So every time I'm getting into a trade, I'll make sure that my maximum possible loss on that trade is X, no matter what happens. So what happens is as the trade progresses, I'll always move my levels to lock in some amount. That way I reduce the loss and also potentially lock in some profits as the trade progresses, make it risk-free and benefit rewarding. If the trade loses, I know X is gone and I have only 2X to go. So I either get into another trade and then try to see if I'll make something on it. However, if the second one loses, they have a very thin margin of error because they only have, let's say, one more X to go. So I'll either decide, okay, am I emotionally, mentally in a state to take more risk at this point? Or do I need to take a walk? Do I need to stop trading for the day? So at any one point, all trading decisions are based on, am I one, my emotional sober enough, logical enough to be able to objectively look at the trade and weigh the risk return parameters on this trade objectively. So it's all about knowing your limitations as a human being, which so you have those that are standard to most humans like perfect theory. And then you also have those that I individual, like personally, I know my limitations. So it's knowing those, being aware and seeing when they're coming in and then having the discipline to adhere to the limits and the trading system that you're getting into. Yeah, so that's how we manage losses. Thanks, Tegan. You're almost one hour in. There's too many questions coming through. We started a fast one here. I just think that they've invested with Mansa X and they've not been able to know the status of the tax that comes with these investments there. We were told there will be no withholding tax. So kindly ask Narashun to expound on tax in general on Mansa X. And he says, thanks for creating the platform. Isn't this such a scary thing to talk about taxes these days? KNA is listening. What I can say is that our trading model pays for taxes for the instruments that we trade. So everything that we trade within the fund pays taxes. So when it comes to withholding taxes, we pay taxes on behalf of our clients for any instruments that we trade that require or attract tax. So recently it just used to be any bond transactions that attract taxes and where, as well as the cash holdings that we have with banks. So we've always paid those. And by the way, if we were not paying those, our returns would be much higher. Recently, They've also imposed a financial derivatives tax. Again, this is something we do on behalf of our clients. And for a very long time, our argument has always been, and obviously for so long, I think we could be right on this one. Our argument has always been, there was a capital gains tax for market determined products. Because you see, Mansa X is not a purely client you get into a fund in January and every day you gain only so much. Those are the kind of instruments that attract withholding tax. Mansa X is the kind of product that goes up and down. And in fact, this is something we've struggled to explain to some clients who at some point will wonder why is my capital less than when he came in? Because maybe his statement is, maybe he's trying to withdraw funds halfway through the quarter. But that's because it's market determined. And for this reason, therefore, capital gains tax would be what would have applied to Mansa X. But there's no capital gain tax for capital market instruments of which Mansa X is. Neither does withholding tax again apply for the same reason because the movement and gains and returns are again market determined. 
So, so that, for that reason, we advise our clients to an individual investor, just declare that investment to KRA. I think KRA are reasonable enough to see and understand that there is no tax on this. And if you're a company, I guess on your side, you declare it as other income. But I don't know, I guess for, in that regard, that's a bit different when it comes to a corporate. But again, this again will be determined by the nature of your company and only a tax advisor can really help with that explanation. But from the fund itself, taxes are largely taken care of. Next question is on risks. Someone is asking here, what are the risks involved in this type of investments? Now, people emphasize a lot the aspects of returns, which are pretty solid, but then talk a bit about risk. I totally agree with that person who asked that question. And it's actually our narrative. First, we don't think that the conversation around investments should always be on return. In fact, there are times I'll ask people, what was the return last year? Because that's not what we focus on. In fact, I consider myself more of a risk manager, a return giver, because I always feel that a good return is just a byproduct and a side effect to proper risk management. That's all it is. And over time, that's proven that if you're managing your risk, you'll probably do well. You'll most likely do well in markets. So we are very careful about risk. Secondly, I think there is a very big misconception about alternative funds like ours. Okay. I feel as if for a very long time, fund managers in Kenya sold investing in bonds because that's mostly what it's done. In investing in bonds and real estate as almost risk-free investments. And therefore, any fund manager who came in with a wide variety of instruments like we have is then viewed as more risky or inherently more risky. We don't think that our argument is actually correct. In fact, we feel it's a reverse, okay? To take a lot of pains to go wrong for Mansa X to make a considerable loss, but it takes one or two things to go wrong in the real estate market for some fund managers to go wrong like you saw in some fund managers recently, okay? Whereas people have assumed investing in real estate is absolutely risk-free. But that's why on our side, we feel as if because we have a very diversified portfolio, our risk is actually less. Ideally, it's actually less. The, the fact that we are considered more risky is baffling to me sometimes. And that's why for the client who's concerned, we are on your side because we are really trying to make sure we are very well diversified to prevent you losing your funds. But like I said, at any one time, because you see Mansa X is valued on a daily basis. And I'm sure, Eric, you will agree with me. That's a very complex way to do it. Most funds that run the kind of portfolio that we do will revalue every six months, for example, most hedge funds on Wall Street and London and so on. But we do this on a daily basis. For example, if we have a bias for a long market where we believe that markets will be bullish, meaning that we expect that markets will rally on, for a particular quarter, markets don't rally every day. We can be bullish on oil. And yes, it moves from 100 to 120. But during that period, it goes from 100 to 110. Then the next day, it drops from 110 to 105. An investor who accesses their funds on the day it drops from 110 to 105 will find that their portfolio is less. That's really just market movement. And we really like to emphasize this to clients. And we feel as if there's a lot more investor education required in Kenya for investors to understand that markets are cyclical and that markets fluctuate even if the overall investment philosophy is actually correct. That is something that you have to accept if you're in a portfolio in any asset class, really. And the lack of this understanding, I feel, leads a lot of Kenyans to being pushed to that narrative, especially by conmen who come and tell you they'll double your money every two months. You're happy to hear that, but you should ask yourself, if this guy can consistently make returns day in, day out, where does he need your financial is very honest about how markets function. But we are also very happy that over time we have proven that in spite of these near-term shocks, over time we are still a better than average giver of returns.
couple of questions that come in. So one is, I bet you trade local derivatives. If you can speak about it. Do you trade local derivatives? And then how's the impact in terms of the new taxation that is going to be coming into place on derivatives? Yes, we trade local derivatives, especially currency ones. And we feel that it's not a big concern for us because for local derivatives, the new regulations were very clear that taxes only apply to financial derivatives from non-residents. So for the local derivatives that we trade, that's not an issue. There can be an impact, and this is something we're already in talks with our global providers. Of, so it's actually more of a concern for the global ones, not the local ones, which obviously because the non-resident providers of financial derivatives pricing, again, are the ones who are then taxed because of the profit that they are then deemed to make from trading with Mansa X as a resident. But of course, this is something also as an industry, we have certain questions about. We've seen the law and what it says, it's very clear. But what it's not clear about is how to implement it. For example, if a non-resident writes you a financial derivative and, for example, say writes you an option and therefore receives a premium from you, is that premium that he has received considered a return on his end? It could have been a back-to-back -back trade on his site with another offshore uh, or another trader within the same market he's coming from. Number two, is it considered a loss on your side simply because you paid it as a premium? Or is it possibly something that you use to hedge another position, existing position? How do you differentiate between a loss in a portfolio and a hedging cost? So you see, Eric, it's very complicated. So we feel as if for now, it's something that obviously because this cut is out of the bag, obviously there can be an impact, but a lot more definitions need to come from the people who wrote this law, as well as KRA on how they'll actually implement those taxes. I think Kerry has a lot of explanations to do there in terms of the bow turns. This yeah, week. that's a tough one. That's a tough one for Gary. I'll tell you that. That's Another quick question here. One is asking when you'll be able to have like online returns possible, like someone can check the portfolio online or statements available online. Maybe you can speak to that. And someone else is asking about how do you ensure transparency to your investors, given that you don't have a platform yet where clients can trace the value of their portfolio. So if I withdraw, you tell me the valuation is X, how do I know it's not Y? And he says he's a bit frustrated by the opacity there. So maybe you can answer them. I totally get the pain, the concern and frustration for a client who is ready to see a continuous a shift in their portfolio every day. But I can tell you, a lot of investors think that's a good thing, but it's something that would be really tough on you. Because again, going back to what I said, markets move, markets can be erratic. There are periods that you can look at your portfolio and you'll be calling Nahash Midnight saying, is the fund collapsing? Yeah. Part of the reason why you pay us a 5% is exactly to protect you from this. A lot of, and we have some clients like that client who's asked that question, who are ready for that or feel that they're ready for that. But we have some clients who are not ready for that and do not want that. Also, we have another type of client who feels that they're ready for it. But the day you try it, then they realize they're not ready for it. So I think there's something moving forward, again, goes back to what I was saying about investor education and really being certain about whether investors really understand funds, especially the funds that go up and down. But on our side, we guarantee you that the valuations you get are the real valuations of the fund. We don't keep anything to ourselves. We don't keep anything for ourselves. And this is then one of the things that should give you comfort is that the fund is audited. We actually have a trustee as well because the CMA has now brought in new rules for a fund like ours. Like now we have to have a trustee that actually has to check the books and confirm that what we are saying is as it is in the fund. Again, the CMA themselves do regular inspections of it, which again is another thing that should give comfort to investors.
But yes, you'll be surprised if investors wanted to know their valuations every day. Strictly speaking, it's something we can do. But most of this, again, it's not just limited to Kenya. If you look at hedge funds around the world, they don't even have websites, some of them. Because, and most of this is not meant to lock out the same investor who trusted you. It's really to just let the investor benefit from having invested in you and paid you a whole 5% a year to run his funds. And therefore, this investor should be able to sleep at night and not have, it, have to do the same job Kahinda has to do every day of valuing the funds and going through the emotional turmoil that comes with it. I agree. Now, on that aspect, like they need to trust you at the end of the day. There's a point at which transparency actually inhibits a bit of your working because you also have a time period for your investments to work out. And if someone really pushes you hard, then you get into these kind of really tricky situations. But That's are you maybe thinking of having an online platform at some point, perhaps? Maybe for a simpler fund or I don't know. We feel as if, for example, for a money market fund, that's rather easy because the instrument is typically one linear. But again, that's something that's up to discussion. We have enough clients now. We have our trustees, Kingston and Court, who represent the clients. I guess if the clients, enough of them say that they want to see this, we have to listen. Now, did you have anything to add to some of the questions that you've asked? I've been told, I think, notion of the trust, all of them, a lot better than you would have. Someone here is asking, what's Mansa X five-year plan for the investor's portfolio and how will you ensure longevity? I think this is a very important question because yesterday I was listening to one of the Invest Like the Best podcasts and one of the funds I really look at is Sequoia and they've been running around for 40, 50 years now. And back in the 2000s that they sat down and really thought about longevity, how do we ensure that this fund runs beyond me or beyond us? Mm. And another thing they did is to actually maybe set up a cut of age by age 65, I will get out of this and someone else will come in. And after that, I don't get involved with the fund and most of the returns accrue now to the younger and newer generation so that they can be able to feel part of it. You've been around for five years and maybe that's not a long time, but have you thought about longevity? Maybe at some point you also want to exit and someone else comes in. How does that ensure continuity of funds and what's your vision going forward? Question. It's something we've always battled with as well. And so the secure capital guys, we are on the same page on that one. So just to align with that part, we constantly bring in very young minds. In fact, it is our version of a social responsibility. We bring in a lot of interns straight from campus. We're one of the few investment banks that hire straight from campus. Why do we do this? Because we feel that they've got enough education. Their experience will come from how they experience the fund. The ideas that we get from these young guys are phenomenal. And we've been able to grow and have a lot more innovative ideas coming in because of getting a lot of young talent from the market. And we think this is what will help us continue on for as long as possible. The second thing is that over time, we have found that with more assets in the fund, we have been able to access more products that have actually helped us to continue earning the same kind of return while reducing the risk. It's actually very interesting. It's almost like paddling a small boat. We could paddle it, but there's always a risk of turning it, toppling over. But now, well, the more it turns into a ship, yes, you move in the same direction, but it's harder to sink it. So we're very happy because moving forward, Mansa X is diversified into a lot more assets. It's able to get into more relationships with the investment banks around the world that help it to manage its risk. So how do we then become timeless? What's our strategic plan? Of course, it's really to become a household name in terms of investment management, in terms of being the place that you can place funds and be sure that you'll get a return but also be sure that you will not lose your funds. And over time, giving clients and giving our investors that comfort and proving ourselves over time is what really our vision is. And of course, really also just changing the industry locally. 
have more Mansa access. A lot of people ask me, are you scared about competition and having people doing the same thing you're doing? Actually, I encourage it because the more you have people doing what Mansa X does, the more we're able to legitimize this as a good asset class to invest in. So for the next 30 years, we believe and put it in place systems that should allow the fund to live beyond all of us who are currently running the fund. A quick one here, how leverage is Mansa X? I'm asking for a figure, 2.234X. No, no, it's much less than that. And not more than 1.8x. Pretty small. In fact, that's one of the interesting things. So when we started the fund, the law actually allowed us to leverage up to 400x. Can you imagine? We actually allowed to leverage that much. That's in the law. Yeah, it's right there in the law. It's right there. It's actually a number there. And the reason we did not do that is because that's absolutely unnecessary. Especially when you're trying to just have slightly higher than average return, there's no need to leverage that much. And then also in terms of management fees, someone here is asking, do you charge management fees if you don't make returns? I think management fees are just a percentage of the yeah. AUM. So that's correct. Complex. Correct. Correct. So I think that's uh, management fees are just standard. Unless you want the Warren Buffett style of management where you only get management fees when there's a positive return. It's asking about the deep in returns in 2021. There was 19, 18, 50 point five and then 15.6 and is that something about it i guess that's just a function of markets i'm trying to remember 2021 oh yes there's a lot more caution i remember now because moving from 2020 during that covid period and supply chain disruptions at the end of 2020 because of covid then moving into 2021 a lot of our players were very cautious okay There's a risk with too much caution because if there's caution, there's a lot of cash held in the fund and that cash creates what you call a cash drag because a lot of cash is held in cash as opposed to being invested in instruments that actually give you a return. So fund managers will do this to prevent loss on capital, but will end up depleting the return overall. So that's what happened to us in 2021, abundance of caution. About the team, how is the team size like? And also, secondly, a question I'm really asking is this something to do with pushing returns as you grow in scale? So if a fund becomes too big, then the returns are harder to generate. Do you feel you may hit that point soon or are you too far away from that? No, we are too far away from that. I always tell people that we are not a bridge water here, BlackRock. We are still very small. In the context of global financial hedge funds, we are really small. So... We are not yet there. In fact, there are still transactions that would be a huge benefit to our clients that we still cannot get into because we don't have enough capital. So we are still rather small. And then I also very good speak about some of the partners, global partners you have in this, as you work in terms of globally, which are some of the institutions that you get to interact with in the process. Eric, I'm so sorry. I'd love to tell you this. We actually feel that we've worked so hard to create these relationships and to get this done that we feel as if this is something that we should keep to ourselves. <laughs> but you know what? If you ask me that personally, call me, I'll tell you. Okay, that means a coffee after. We feel like we've worked. It's one of the biggest advantages that Mansa X has. The fact that we have global partners who can help us exit a position at a moment's notice. And we feel as if this is information that's so proprietary for us. I understand that because I think at the end of the day, relationships in this business are more important. If you want something executed, you want friends. We have a speaker here, Jeb, who wants to ask a question directly. Jeb, maybe you can unmute it, ask a question. Thank you for the opportunity, Eric. Uh, my question is directed to you, Nahash. Kindly explain to us your global outlook for 2023. And while you do that, I'd appreciate if you touched on rebound of inflation 
in US and Europe, Asian liquidity injection into capital markets and Asia reopening, and also the wage price spiral risk in the US markets. Thank you. Great. Deb, Martin. Okay, that's a good one. Uh, so obviously we ended 2022 on a negative note. If you look at how markets were last year, it was mostly just negative, especially in the last quarter. And many of the risk factors, high inflation, Fed rate hike campaign, geopolitical unrest, and of course, some dullness in the investment landscape moving into 2023 will continue to be the same. So Jeb, moving, for, moving into 2023, inflationary risks will continue to be a concern for us and how that this again infects the rest of the world. Just a simple example is just how inflationary pressures in the U.S. led to the highest Fed rates we have seen in a while. And now look at what that has done to the dollar against the shilling. And that is not just affecting Kenya, it's affecting the rest of the world. So 2023 will be interesting that way. But while the risk factors we've discussed there, it's also important to note that as we enter 2023, the market is also approaching a potentially important transition period that could also see these headwinds ease in the months ahead. Okay. So one of the things, of course, as Jeb, you mentioned inflation, we have seen it. It's actually now declining. We saw a high of 9.1% last year. Of course, that was crazy. We've never seen U.S. inflation rates at that level, but now at least we are now at 6%. So again, this is giving us some comfort that maybe some of the central bank actions we were seeing might change. Although to be honest, we still think there's potential for more rate hikes from the Fed. But again, we feel that the markets have priced this one's in. And also don't forget that after a historically aggressive rate hiking campaign, most of the times you will actually see the Fed also very aggressively drop off their rate hikes. The Fed is very comfortable as a central bank in actually how they deal with interest rate. So I guess this year we'll actually see a bit of easing of that towards the end of the year. I don't know what else he had asked. What do you think about the Asian liquidity injection from China into the capital well, market from the beginning of the year and how it's going to affect markets? Oh yeah, that's one of the reasons why the effect of a higher rate hike might not actually be as much. Why? Because the reason why we are getting more liquidity coming from Asia is because of the end of the zero policy policy stance that we had in China. That created a total lack of liquidity because there are supply chain constraints, of course, more anxious investment in landscape in, China, in Asia. And now with that done, we actually expect that should help the markets to be a bit more supportive. I mean, supported even when you have a rate hike coming from the West. So Jeb, that's actually a very good one. It's one of the reasons why with the kind of rate hikes we've been seeing, you'd have actually expected markets to have crashed by now, and we haven't seen them. Jeb, thank you. And also, sorry, Eric, for Jeb and anyone who is also looking for this kind of outlooks, we can take their email addresses. We send a lot more comprehensive research mm. outlooks on what we are thinking. I would want to maybe bring back the conversation slightly about your research side and other things that you do besides managing funds. And give us a bit of flavor of that. Okay, other than the buy side, so... SIB is divided between the buy side of the business, which is what I've been discussing almost the entire time. But we also have the sell side of the business, the brokerage side, where we buy and sell equities, both for retail, institutional investors and governments, but also the corporate finance department, where we do a lot of advisory work. We help clients with fundraising. If any client is listening here who typically would be looking to maybe get funding for their business or get someone to advise them on how to rebalance their balance sheet. We do that. We have a whole department for that. We also recently partnered with a trade finance provider. Again, this is something very exciting we have for 2023 from SIB. And again, this speaks to SIB's constant innovation. So we help contractors, people who are looking for invoice discounting to actually get a liquidity through our investment bank. Again, with a very short turnaround time. So... Those are other things that we do as well. 
Hilda, you can give us a bit of flavor on how you're looking at things this year and what kind of content are you exposing yourself to daily to make sure that you're a better trader? Hilda. Thank you very much for that question. Very relevant in this environment. I think this is a very interesting year. And the reason for that is we are seeing this push and pull between markets, expectations, market anticipations, and what monetary policy is doing. What I mean by that is, on the one hand, you have your inflationary risks and pressures, which is driving up rates. And in as much as inflation has started easing out, there are areas of the economy where it's a bit more persistent and a bit more pronounced. So the effect that has is on the policy side, your regulators who've been raising interest rates initially at a very fast rate, but then at a much slower rate this year, are then finding themselves in a position to have to ask, do we have to raise for longer by the same amount, or do we have to go higher? Do we have to slow down? Do we have to reduce? And the situation that puts us in is as a market, we then have to try and be one step ahead or just react as fast as we can to whatever economic data is coming out. Because one thing that's very interesting is over the last 20 years, since 2002, actually, there's no two years where the market have had returns consecutively. So every negative year since 2002 has been followed by a positive year. Last year was heavily negative because of all the action that central banks have take to mop up the liquidity that they had injected in 2021. So we got into this year with a lot of market participants expecting if the last 20 years anything to go by, this would be a positive year. But you then have your economic data that's coming in that's not very supportive of that. So you're finding situation where there's a lot of uncertainty that's been introduced. So expectations on my side are a lot of uncertainty, inflation risks, but then at the same time in Europe, you have your war risks. So the kind of year where we remain very nimble with our triggers and just ready to act at whatever comes our way, whatever we expect or we see happening. And how am I staying? In times like this, I always refer back to one of my favorite statistical or mathematical or economic authors, Nicholas Nassim Taleb. He's basically a guy who wrote a lot about tail risks. Very famous book of his called The Black Swan. He also happened to be a trader, by the way. So he's not just an author, but he's an author who has skin in the game, which is extremely important. I think for times like this, basically since 2020, he's been top of the list of staying sharp. And I think if I were to maintain and just keep top of my head the lessons of the cleanings from his material, amongst others, of course, especially the writers like Mark Douglas, who have written a lot about trading psychology, because times like this have been also very heavy on the psychology, then it will go a long way in making sure that we as a team generate alpha returns. Great. Now, maybe two questions to be finally close. The first one is how easy or hard is it to withdraw your investment for months and X? And what's the process? Maybe you can give a bit of brief on that, a question that has come through. And the second one that came through, actually three. The second one is about how you help your traders deal with the mental challenge of scaling up their position size with increasing the funds AUM. And then fine question is about what in your view makes a good financial analyst? So those three questions. So one, it's about the withdrawal process. The second one is about helping your traders manage the mental challenge of scaling up. 
the third question is about what makes a good financial analyst. All right, thank you for that. So the withdrawal period from Mansiax, internally we have we have a very strict policy that it should be within 48 hours. But I'll be the first one to admit, last year we had a few instances when we had a problem with our system and we did not actually meet that turnaround time for our clients. But typically most clients have been happy enough with our withdrawal period, not exceeding 48 hours. That's how quick it is, unless there's any hiccup, like the ones I've just mentioned or admitted to. The second one is trader psychology. How do you deal with that? That's an ongoing job for me. And we'll be the first ones to admit that traders actually, for example, at X traders, they actually see therapists. You'll be surprised. That's one of the things traders have to do, especially if a trader has gone through a period when he's on a losing streak, that can do a significant amount of damage to them in terms of self-esteem, no matter how good the trader is. So we actually employ the use of therapists within our fund, for the traders at least. What makes a good financial analyst? The best financial analysts I have seen are the ones who are actually less theoretical and also more in touch with markets. I'll give you a very good example of the difference between the theoretical financial analysts and the ones that are more in tune with markets. There is a very famous hedge fund back in the 90s called Long-Term Capital Management. And it was actually started by the theorists who came up with the Black-Scholes equation. The Black-Scholes equation is an equation that you use to price options. One of the derivatives hedge funds used to trade. Now, long-term capital management actually at some point collapsed. Why did it collapse? Because as it was, as markets were going against long-term capital management, the people who are running the fund kept referring to the theory that they used because it seemed mathematically correct. And they felt that the market was not behaving as their theory should, was telling them the markets should behave. So that's a very good example of how there can be a significant disconnect between theory and actual market practice. Best financial analysts are the ones who've been in markets. They know how markets work, and then they can marry that sound economic theory to make the best analysis of markets. And that's why, for example, when Kahinda says Nassim Taleb is a very good writer, it's because he has the best of both worlds. And that's why he's a fantastic financial analyst. Look at books written by people like Ray Dalio, who are like Principles by Ray Dalio. It's a fantastic book. Why? Because Ray Dalio is able to merge his knowledge of markets, having run Bridgewater Associates, one of the largest hedge funds in the world, with sound economic theory. So I think that's what makes a very good financial analyst. I think you've nailed everything perfectly. It's one hour and a half now that you've been going through this. So at this point, I would want to give you guys to give your closing thoughts. Maybe I'll start with Kahinda. Maybe you can give us a bit of your closing thoughts. Maybe a parting shot to the people who want to be future analysts and traders like you. And maybe anything else that you'd want people to know about Mansa X that you've not covered so far. Trinity, I just wanted to say for those who want to get into the path of balance. I think Mongo Capital has set a very good example in terms of one all of them doing what happened on the first of the interest of Definitely in the analyst call, analyzing where the financial technology can when you can. As Nahashan had mentioned earlier, one of the things that he looks at when people are trying to get to the space is interest. So you have to have interest. You have to hack on that interest. Read as much as you can go out of your way. If it's something you're learning, don't just stick to what you've taught in class. Read outside your class material. Read happening in field. Go out of your way to find anything that may help. Some of the people who got into months that didn't get into it because they were very good at what they did. Yes, they were, but then it's what they did. The extra mile that they went be it the extra studying, the extra what they did outside their regular job. So that's what differentiates who 
get there. And if you're already in a position where you're exposed to these things, I think my word would then be keep your eye on the prize, keep doing what you need to do. Remember that you have to earn your stripes with time. Just keep at it and it will come to you. Thank you. First of all, Eric, I think this is a fantastic forum. Just to thank you for it. Refreshingly relevant questions. I find that the kind of questions have been asked today, this evening by yourself are very relevant to some of the things that we have been trying to communicate to both existing and potential clients. So I want to thank you for that excellent forum. And I mean, for all the listeners who joined us this evening, listening to us up to, up to this time in the evening, 9.30 is pretty late for most people, I'm sure. And that shows a lot of respect for what we do. And it just gives us the fire to keep going. And we really appreciate it. Moving forward, we always to answer any questions, both online or you can even just reach out to us either by calling us or if you reach out to me and I don't respond to you, most likely someone from one of our many financial advisors, we have almost a hundred of them happy to answer your questions. And if they're not able to, can refer you to somebody who can. We're very happy to engage with both existing and potential clients. And Eric would be happy to be present for as many events such as this one that help us to explain to investors and explain this alternative investment field, which for most Kenyans is pretty new, but Again, as I said, Kenyans are very good at picking up things that make sense to them and being very enthusiastic about it. So I think you're in the right space. And thank you for honoring me this space tonight. Thank you. I would say I'm very privileged actually to have discussed this. I didn't know we have that much interest because Mongo Capital is actually mostly like a side thing I do. My main work is actually in global financial markets. So I'm a we have a weekly newsletter I call the transcript and monitor capital markets, especially the U.S. I spend a lot of time in earnings calls of companies trying to monitor trends. So yes. I send you a copy of the newsletter and then you can have a look at it. So that's why most of the questions I asked are more relevant to what you do. And actually very impressed. I didn't know that you had this much in common. So I'll definitely read out personally to have a discussion. I think we have a lot more in common than I thought. I'm actually impressed. But thanks for coming. The information you've given is very much a lot. And I think my key takeaway is obviously Kenyans look a lot at returns, especially when it comes to, I mean, if it's housing and all, you're looking at what's safe, you're looking more at returns. Always ask the question of risk. And if someone is not willing to tell you what's a downside, I think you should run as much as you can. And I'm very grateful that you're very open in terms of discussing loans and stuff like that. So very impressed, I would say, Nash. So thank you. And don't be a stranger. Come back again soon. Let's have a discussion, especially around making better traders. We can do a bit of work around mentoring people to be financial analysts, sharing with the next generation of young analysts who are coming up. And also to break down some of the reports that you're pushing out. So looking forward to having you around. For the rest of the audience, thank you so much. This is actually one of the spaces which has one of the highest attendance in a long time. I think at that point we had around like three, 250 to 300 people tuned in at one point. So very impressive. Tana, thank you for giving us your time. Our intention is really not to market products to you guys in the audience. It's more to expose you to the products and to expose you to the people. They can come speak to you and then you can see if it makes sense. Personally, I've been impressed and I hope you do have. And if you have, reach out to them. What's the email, Nashon? Where can they find you again? You can email me directly. Uh, nmungai. Nmungai. Nmungai at sib.co.ke. Okay, and Mungai at sib.co.k. If you want to go to a more certain one that you will get a response from, it's info at sib.co.k. There's another email here. It's client service at sib. Oh, yes. So I think that's a good one. So.
Thank, thank you for being open enough. And Kahinda, thank you so much for coming to share your trading secrets. He's the first time I've met a commodities trader. So I think we'll discuss more on how last year was good and how this year is going to be positioned with the reopening in China. Lots of stories around that. But I hope you've been impressed as I am. And see you all guys again soon.